This is the AMA Los Angeles Podcast. Welcome to the AMA Los Angeles Podcast. I'm Joel Metzger. This is part two of a three-part podcast with a live panel on content creation and distribution recorded live at the Edmonds headquarters in Santa Monica. The panelists are Natalie Lubensky, CMO, Edmonds.com, Farhana Pargash, Business Development, CAA, Andy Tu, CMO, Defy Media, RJ Kirkland, VP of Regional Sales Business Insider, Shane Mady, Senior Vice President, MediaLink, and the moderator is Philip Rebentish, President, AMA Los Angeles. Let's get started and join the discussion already in progress. Okay, moving on to distribution for a little bit. Um, uh, basically, content distribution versus display advertising. What are some strategies that make content distribution different than traditional display advertising on the web? Well, I mean, obviously, they're two very different mediums, right? I mean, you're looking at a piece of content that's created more long form, whether it's you know snackable or if it's longer form. But the reality is, uh, it's a way for for brands to leverage in and always be within the programming, and it travels, right? And I think that the smart brands, I mean, Mondelez is trying to do this now, and they're doing it somewhat successfully, uh, where the the brand is the content, and that can be on various platforms versus you know a brand that's leveraging in and using their data, whether it's programmatic or whatnot, to actually leverage in and and buy that audience at the time that they're looking for. So it's very different economics, uh, and brands can play both simultaneously. For us, and this is a kind of an interesting story. So it doesn't it doesn't dovetail well with with what you just said. But um, but it, but again, it's 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 understanding because you talk about monetization of uh, you know getting the, getting your if it's monetization through display or distribution through uh, through other means. Uh, it, it's figuring out the way. I, I think of. Um, uh, from you know, we've got over 200 um, journalists on, on on staff, and a lot of times they're breaking stories via their Twitter feed, and that's that's not the way that you make money as a you know as a, as a publisher. You've got to drive people to your web page, or if you know if you're a newspaper, you have to drive people to your newspaper. That's what, but. When you do that, you create a following, and you get retweeted, and people follow you. And, and so there's a long-term play there versus the short-term gain. And so sometimes understanding your distribution and what your, what your plan and strategy is, it's the long-term versus the short-term. And, and how do you think about that? What are the ways that you can connect with people um, and, and know that they're going to come back to you or search you out or find you versus um, you know, paying to drive them to you? There's also, I think, one other piece, too, which is, content distribution in the sense of I'm windowing my content on various platforms, right, versus just the straight monetization for, you know, display, and how that plays into your plan, and licensing that same content to various platforms as well, whether it's a, that's the Vice model today. I mean, they don't make most of their money on advertising. They make most of their money on content distribution and licensing fees. So other than Business Insider and Insider, of course, what platform um, should content be dis content distribu distribution be on? Where, is there one platform where you need to be? The web. <laughs> and OTT. <laughs> what are the risks and rewards of scheduled posts or scheduled pushing content? Let's talk a little bit about that. So again, what's, what are some good strategies and what are some bad, thing bad things that can happen when you've got scheduled content that is you know, slated to go out? Again, like I, I come at it from a time before you could schedule. So if you were going to tweet at 9 o'clock at night, you had to be live at 9 o'clock at night and, and push it out. Same with Facebook. Um, and being on the West Coast, I've been up at 5 a.m. to post things live for the East Coast people. Um, I think there's an advantage to posting things live myself just because you're, you're 
very sure about what you're putting out there at the time and you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, you've probably all seen examples of when there's a world event or something bad happens and then you see, you get that brand ad um, and it's like, hey, isn't today a great day? Have a coffee. And you're like, we just got <laughs> blown up. Like, you know, because it was scheduled or it's running and people aren't pausing it. Um, and I don't think you should underestimate that because if something negative happens, you know, if you're a human being, your first in instinct is not what's running on social. It's like, oh my God. And you might have to process that in a way, um, especially if it's local, but you you might have something scheduled and going out and nobody else has access to it and nobody can shut it down and that creates a problem. That being said, if you're running a media campaign at Airbnb, we launched, um, you know, our first campaign, a global campaign called One Less Stranger. We launched it on December 31st. Um, and, you know, Christmas break, we needed to have it live. We had to schedule media across all platforms, not just social, but digital, everything had to run. Um, and it's just like, you know, cross your fingers moment there. So there is total value to kind of getting things out. Um, but I also, you know, for me, I think for social, because social is pretty manageable, to do things manually is really important. I think Facebook, um, if I would say any one platform, Facebook in particular, like do that manual. Um, we're, we're a great example, actually. I shouldn't probably call us out. But if you go to our Facebook post right now, you'll probably see we scheduled it through an app. And then um, one of our link posts came up and it's not accurate title and header um, because we, we couldn't change that manually. Um, so something like that, I think it's just really important to have um, control about that. I think it just, I don't know, maybe I'm a control freak and I have issues, but um, yeah. I think that the platforms change fast enough that you you kind of you can't settle into a groove on what that schedule is, and I think we sit there internally and obsess about platforms of of saying, oh, I've got this figured out. You know, it really is is like a 10 a.m. post is the thing that kicks off the day, and then you do a video post, but you gotta follow that with a text post because it pulls you back into. It's like, okay, well, you better have a lot of heft in doing that on a regular basis for some sample that says I know that to be true, and sometimes you just had six great posts, and sometimes you figured something out that's going to make you operate differently. But I, I mean, it, I go back to the PewDiePie thing that happened and the sky is falling moment for all these big YouTubers. And the reality is for people that have been close to their numbers for a while, it's not all that shocking because YouTube's made a massive shift into watch time being the core metric because they're trying to be more like television. And when you come back to your YouTube dashboard, they want it to be completely refreshed just like when you go on TV, it's not like, what's all this stuff I watched last week? It's like new stuff. And you hit guide and you see a bunch of new stuff. And so it's it's just understanding the nuance of those things. And I think scheduled posts can be the like, all right, we decided the schedule. And you're like, right, but then this thing happened and we had to leverage that. Or this other thing happened and it was all bad and we had to take all those posts down. And if you're not nimble, you're definitely going to fall asleep while somebody else eats your lunch. And, and that happens really every day as some, some new platform that pops up. The reason people on platforms like Musical.ly and Lively are crushing it isn't because they're sitting there with their analytics, for sure. It's because they're early and they're just trying a bunch of different stuff and they're seeing success and building on that success. And a year from now, somebody's going to try to Excel sheet their way into figuring that platform out and they're going to fail because they're not going to be native to that platform and be early. I've got one last question, and then we're going to open up um, for Q&A. Um, but what constitutes a successful campaign? Are there different, I mean, I know this may seem obvious, but are there different types of ROI for different agencies? I mean, what is the definition of success? I feel like that would require like a panel just on its own. Wait, we have three minutes. Okay, Come on. Three minutes. Um, I would say um, that you have to know what your campaign goals, I mean, 
KPIs and goals should be different for each and every campaign. Um, for example, with, with Airbnb, the One Less Stranger um, campaign that I talked about, Airbnb had just gone through a rebrand. They had never had a marketing team before. They had never done any campaign work before. Their brand awareness at the time when I joined was 1%. Um, and their brand trust was at 1%. So, you know, the whole concept of getting a stranger to stay at your home and you have brand trust of 1%, like, that's a, a massive challenge. Um, so when we did the One Less Stranger campaign, that was pure brand awareness. There was no nights booked as a goal. There was no new, no new host sign up as a goal. It was purely brand awareness and engagement. Um, and we spent millions of dollars on achieving those metrics. Now, the content that came out a couple of months later was driving nights booked because we have to make money and, and keep the lights on. Um, and then there's a campaign to get hosts. So it just depends on what your goals are, where your, campaign, uh, where your brand is, what your needs are. And then you have to adjust every campaign individually. Like as a, as a company, you can say, these are the, the five main goals that we judge ourselves month over month so you can understand. But each campaign should really have their own, own set of metrics. The biggest challenge from a publisher standpoint and piggybacking off of that is if the brand's transparent with what those KPIs are, then it's a win-win. If you're, you or the agency that you're working with are very tight-fisted in terms of that, that information, you're going to have failure. Because ultimately, you're not working in the same schedule and you're not working towards the same goals and you can't you know, ideate together and actually create a successful program and engage the right way you want to engage. Yeah, you know, and we could go a million different directions, right? You could do a whole. Exactly, this, I know. This I know. is um, uh, thirty seconds now. Thirty seconds. But, but what I what I think is interesting, you know, when you think about this, from it, how are you going to set up your goals and metrics, is making sure you have alignment throughout your your company, right? Because there are multiple multiple groups, multiple divisions, and sometimes C level executives that don't always agree with your success metric and what you're going to deem as success. And so inevitably, it might come back to a CFO that is going to say. How many clicks did we get, right? Or, or if you can measure it all the way back to the sale of, you know, what, what was our what was our ROI on that? But ROI on that, back to the spreadsheet. Um, so that, that's, I mean, I think without going into all the different uh, nuances of everything, it's a matter of making sure you have complete alignment within your company or with your partner that they're sign off beyond just your primary contact of what that goal is going to be. That's going to save you a lot of angst and anxiety at the end of the campaign when you think you killed it. And somebody else comes back and says, you, you failed over here. I'm like, well, that wasn't the goal. That's one not what we were optimizing to. It's not what we built it for. But yeah, but that's what our CFO wants. Yeah, and for the people in the room, I think there's a fair number of agency people here that work in partnership with publishers and brands. The, the most, when our team's at our best is by far when conversations or RFPs come through the door where that moment of what we're trying to deliver against is really clear. And it's, it, I like working in the DR business, even though generally it's looked at as, as sort of the unsexy part of our world because it's so much more fun to be able to say it worked or it didn't work. And when it works, it's like, let's double down and let's do more of the stuff that worked. And a long time ago, I had partners when I worked at AOL that were companies like Lower My Bills and, and Experian. And they were so great to work with because by the end of the day, you ended up with a report that said, cut all this double all this, and if we can do more stuff that looks like this, let's do 10 times as much. And we're like, awesome, we'll call you tomorrow with all that new stuff that you want. And I think in our space, too often it's, it's misaligned. I think also in our world, people are so addicted to metrics that may not matter all that much, like views. Oh, my views are amazing, but not if they were, it's like empty calories, right? You didn't get any actual nutrition from those views, so congratulations, you 
found the ghost in the machine to get you the views, but nobody watched that thing. And that happens a lot in our space. So I think for the brand partners that you work with, when you can try and distill that down to say, we're all on the same page, the metric that we're gonna focus on by the end of this campaign is X, let's agree that that's it. And sometimes you don't know and say, I don't know, but we're working with digital partners because we really think you guys like the Airbnb example, you guys can be more authentic, or the anthropology example rather, more authentic at telling the story than we've been able to do. That alone is enough to go off of to say, cool, let's play to our strength in partnership with a brand like that. Let's build guardrails there so that we all win. Um, and, and I think we, we're getting there, honestly, where people are way more sophisticated. But you still know, sometimes I know thing came in the door and they're just, they want a commercial. They, they don't know that they want a commercial yet, but we're gonna have 10 conversations to get them to the point where they just want a commercial that lives on the internet. And that's not our core business for the most part. Let's give a, a big hand to our panel, thank you very much. Okay, we'll pick it up there next time for the final part of our three-part podcast on content creation and distribution, live from the Edmonds headquarters in Santa Monica. This is your host, Joel Metzger. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the AMA Los Angeles podcast. For more information on the American Marketing Association's Los Angeles chapter and to find out about upcoming events, follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. This podcast was produced by Joel Metzger. And Icebox Logic.